Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Francis Drake Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 24, The Spanish Armada. History friends, it's been a tough past few days trying to make deadlines. And with college registration beginning again, I'm made more aware of the fact that this podcast hasn't been as frequent as I'd like. All your support has been brilliant, especially recently. You know who you are. Anyway, back to the podcast at large. For England and Queen Elizabeth, the failure of the Armada cemented her legacy and legend as England's, indeed Britain's, most important and favourite monarch. For Spain... The failure to defeat England meant the virtual end of an unchallenged Spanish monopoly on world power. For in 1600, the East India Company would be established by Elizabeth by way of a royal charter. Seven years after that date, England's first foray into the New World would be made in the form of the settlement of Jamestown in Virginia. The town, named after the by then current monarch James I, King of England, but Virginia itself being named after Elizabeth. At the same time, the defeat of the Armada virtually guaranteed the success of the Dutch Revolt, now ongoing since about 1566, but under the direct support of Elizabeth since 1585. Sorry to spoil the ending if you somehow didn't already know it, but sit back and relax as we take you through the entire thing. Also, if you need a bit of recapping on the subject, go and check out When Diplomacy Fails, episode 22, The Dutch Revolt, before I now take you to the year... 1585 After years of Spain appeared in 1585 to be more dangerous than ever before. Indeed, this is due to a number of factors, but primarily this was because of two events which began to unfold in 1580 that so drastically reversed the depleted Spanish Empire 
and gave Spain the shot of adrenaline in the arm that it so desperately needed. As Peter Padfield in his book Armada explains, quote, Two things came to Philip's rescue, both outside his control first, and most important was a dramatic increase in the quantity of silver coming from the New World mines. Although this still failed to bridge the gap between tax income and mounting military and naval expenditure necessary to defend his frontiers on land, in the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, pay the army of the Netherlands, and attend to England, it bestowed upon his crown a dazzling luster in the eyes of the world, and renewed his banker's confidence. This renewed confidence allowed him to pursue imperial policies with greater freedom than before. End quote. And Padfield comments on the next aspect. Quote, the second stroke of fortune occurred in Portugal. In 1578, the young king Don Sebastian was killed while leading a crusade into Morocco. His successor was an old man, Cardinal Henry of Portugal, who had taken the vows of celibacy and had no direct heirs. Philip had a claim to the throne through the female line, and he began pressing it on influential groups in the country. Not a difficult task, since the Protestant assault on the trade routes was affecting Portugal as much as Spain, and forcing both powers towards an alliance to protect their oceanic monopolies. End quote. Philip's petitioning for the Portuguese throne would eventually pay off, and while the illegitimate Don Antonio would prove something of a thorn in the side of Philip's legitimacy, while countries such as France and England harboured him, Philip's grip on the country was absolute. He became Philip I of Portugal, and received with that title all the lands and wealth that went with Portugal's amalgamation of overseas territory. Padfield explains the impact and significance of this accumulation of power. Quote, At this high point in his reign, the Spanish Empire seemed to embrace the world. Apart from Philip's European possessions, it included all the Portuguese trading stations and islands in the Indian Ocean and Africa. Portuguese Brazil, southwards to Buenos Aires, established in 1580 on the banks of the Rio de la Plata. On the other side of the subcontinent, it extended to down the coast, into what is now Chile, and up beyond the isthmus of Panama, into regions now named California, New Mexico, and Texas, to Florida. Indeed, the whole American continent was claimed. Across the Pacific, his flag flew over the Philippine Islands, which were named after him. The threat represented by this colossus, with apparently inexhaustible sources of wealth, needing only to be hewed from the ground of the New World, was the major factor in European politics. The Protestants of the North had to combine, or they risked being swallowed up one by one. End quote. With this very real fact that Spain was getting more, not less powerful, and with France still not up to scratch when it came to a solid ally, Elizabethan England was the state that stood solely in Philip's way in Western Europe. In a foreign policy model that would repeat itself throughout the next few centuries, England sided with the weaker power in order to balance things out. And, to ensure that, should Spain emerge on the other side of a war with the Dutch as victorious, England would not have to face Spain's full might alone. Padfield notes on this method of thinking. Quote, the risk became very apparent throughout the 1580s. Philip's latest army commander and governor-general in the Netherlands, Alexander Farnese, the Duke of Parma, reconquered the southern provinces and in 1585 took Brussels and Antwerp. The Protestant leader, William of Orange, had been assassinated the previous year with Philip's active encouragement. Philip was known to have plotted Catholic risings in England and Elizabeth's assassination. 
The more immediate threat to England in 1585, however, was the prospect of Parma completing his reconquest of the Netherlands. Then England would be facing the Colossus alone. It was this that decided Elizabeth to send Leicester and his army to aid the rebel northern provinces, and Drake on the cruise, which resulted in the insult to Philip on his own coast at Vigo, and the sacking of Santo Domingo and the Cartagena. These, of course, were the goads that persuaded Philip, in turn, to make England his first priority. End quote. Of course we know from WDF 22, it didn't always have to be this way. Philip II had married the Catholic Queen Mary in 1554, under orders from his father Charles V. The marriage was an unhappy one, ending upon Mary's death in 1558, but had it lasted, had Mary survived and her reign continued, we could be talking about how England remained in Spain's cultural and political orbit, as it very securely was in the years immediately following Mary's death. Indeed, it is perhaps Elizabeth's rule of England, that island country, a pygmy in comparison to Spain's almost incomprehensible wealth and size, that in so many ways is responsible for Spain's eventual downfall. As master of the seas, Spain and her Portuguese ally could claim a monopoly on all trade routes throughout the world. And this was not merely a claim, it had been legalised by a joint Spanish-Portuguese treaty, which in turn had been recognised by the Pope in the years before. Therefore, any English or French tampering with the Spanish or Portuguese trade was against the international law of the time, and Philip, once he came to rule over Portugal, often oversaw the harsh punishment of foreign pirates, unfortunate seamen, and risk-takers who had attempted to skim a little money off the side. In many instances, such activities were sponsored by the state itself. While France remained in turmoil, Elizabeth attempted to make the most out of a distracted Spain, and exploit the advantage and surprise at her disposal. This policy occurred throughout the 1560s, and Elizabeth left no trace, written or otherwise, to give Philip an excuse to act in retaliation. But he must have well known that the English-sponsored piracy was one of England's greatest exports. Certainly he would have called it piracy, and his ministers would have lamented at its underhandedness, but one must bear in mind the very real fact that all Spain's possessions had been won by underhanded means, and that just because Spain and Philip laid claim to almost everything, and refused to trade with the heretical English, at least directly, piracy was one of the few options left. Very often this manifested itself in an English merchant fleet that forced itself and its wares upon the undefended Spanish in the New World, rather than the image we have of a pillaging, beard-wearing criminal organisation sponsored by the English Crown and Government. Though of course there would have been elements of that as well. Peter Padfield thus makes a valid point. Quote, Piracy and smuggling are of course charged with moral significance, as in the other direction is trade. Viewed objectively, there is no moral difference between the Portuguese and Spanish claims to monopoly, won by conquest and supported by frightful exploitation and cruelty, and the Protestant assault on those monopolies by force, accompanied by equal exploitation and cruelty. Both camps were involved in the forcible exchange of wealth. Neither would be termed moral by the standards of the 19th or 20th century liberalists. End quote. However, this tit-for-tat exchange overseas heated up in 1568. In that year, on the 23rd of September, a major exchange at sea between English pirateers and Spanish naval forces created a new era of official antagonism between the two sides. 
the seven refitting English piratical ships under the command of John Hawkins were surprised by a Spanish escort fleet of 15 ships under Don Lugin. What followed was the defeat, imprisonment, torture and execution of many English sailors. Among the English was the soon-to-be-famous Francis Drake, who managed to escape along with Hawkins, though they had lost all their booty from the previous year to the Spanish. The reason why such a battle was said to be so controversial is because a truce between the English and Spanish was said to be in play. Of course this truce comes under scrutiny when you consider a number of factors. For one, if the English pirates did not officially represent England's policy as a whole, why did Elizabeth protest so heavily to Philip at their treatment? Second, the English pirates had already broken and kept this truce so long as it suited them, capitalising on weakly defended Spanish colonies throughout the previous year. Third and finally, the individual whom Hawkins saw as responsible for breaking the truce was merely acting to defend his master's territories from what he believed were pirates acting to exploit the region. Don Lugin acted once he discovered that this fleet of seven privateers had in fact been pillaging his sovereign's coasts and plundering their resources for their own benefit. So in reality, the English are perhaps more responsible for the increase in tension than the Spanish. Of course, it goes without saying that the English and Spanish were less than inconsistent when it came to implementing their overseas policies, but this event really seemed to cement and make official the conflict between the two. Whereas before it was just a sideshow, albeit an expensive one, of Philip's other conflicts with the Ottomans and France, there emerged the sense, after 1568, of an Elizabethan England on firmly the opposite side to Philip in world affairs and on an official level. Throughout the 1570s, we are reminded of Philip's major rival in the Ottomans, whom Philip led the fight and victory against in the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. This victory solidified Philip's status as primary defender of the Catholic faith, but was yet another great example of Philip's limited resources. The financial strain such campaigns put on Philip and the decrease in the priority he had placed on the Netherlands, believing it to be finished as a revolt in the early 1570s, contributed to the depleted state of his treasury by the mid-1570s. This caused the Spanish army campaigning there to revolt and sack Antwerp in retribution, which further chastised the Dutch against him. It would not be the last time Philip would have to file for bankruptcy, but as we saw, his kingdom was revitalised with the acquisition of greater silver and gold from his New World dominions and the Portuguese throne and its dominions. In short, by 1580, Philip felt confident enough in his position to properly pursue the Dutch revolt to its successful conclusion, and his ramping up of the campaign, complete with his increased wariness of English overseas moves, complete with the English wariness of the Dutch situation, created an Elizabethan England which turned from slightly supporting Dutch claims to actively accepting Dutch requests for aid and formally landing an invasion force in Dutch lands. Philip also had to contend with the French, of course, in their ongoing struggle within their borders, and the shifting power balance that seemed to spit out French reps that ranged from being in favour to wholly opposed to Spanish friendship. It was during the French attempts to return the Portuguese pretender Dom Antonio back to Lisbon by way of the Azores that Spain really set a precedent for naval superiority. Lawrence Flanagan, in his book Ireland's Armada Legacy, notes on the background of the event. Quote, the one part of the Portuguese Empire that had not yielded was the Azores, 
a cluster of strategically placed islands in the mid-Atlantic, where a rival claimant to the throne of Portugal, Don Antonio, had set up his headquarters. From there, with the help of the French, he hoped to launch an attack to wrest Portugal back from Philip. The French supplied a force of 6,000 soldiers, carried in 60 ships and under the command of Filippo Stozzi, a Florentine nobleman resident in France. This force set off for the Azores in 1582, some two weeks before the Spanish fleet, only 36 ships strong, sailed from Lisbon under the Marquis of Santa Cruz. When Santa Cruz arrived in Teixeira, the second largest island in the Azores, the French force had already been there six days and heavily outnumbered the Spanish. End quote. This was the kind of daring act rarely seen attempted by the Spanish anymore, who by this time had become more occupied with the idea of maintaining their power rather than expanding upon it, despite Philip's intentions. Flanagan notes the course of the Battle of Ponta Delgada, as it became known, on the 26th of July, 1582. Quote, then at last occurred the world's first serious sea battle between such large and heavily armed ships. With the tactic of boarding the enemy, uppermost in the minds of all the protagonists. The breakthrough came when Lope de Figueroa, in the ship the San Mateo, broke line with the rest of the Spanish fleet. Strozzi, the Florentine mercenary captain, could not resist the temptation. He bore down the San Mateo with five of his strongest ships and pounded to Figueroa with shot for the two hours it took for the rest of the Spanish fleet to get into position. When they did, another three hours of unremitting bloody conflict took place. Eventually, the French turned and fled, their commander Strozzi dead and his flagship sunk. Spain's newly enhanced sea power received a distinguished baptism in this action of San Miguel. Santa Cruz had lost one small dispatch boat and 224 of his men. The French had lost 11 ships and between 1,200 and 1,400 killed. End quote. Santa Cruz was an especially significant figure in Spain, who, after conquering the Azores for Philip the following year, returned home and is said to have told Philip, Now we have all of Portugal. England is ours. Additionally, the proposals put forward by Santa Cruz with regards to this invasion were optimistic, bordering on delusion, but an adapted plan that we'll examine later did sail from Lisbon in 1588, as Santa Cruz always seemed to believe it would. Explaining why France, with its internal turmoil and constantly changing foreign policy, would attack Spain is not that hard to understand in this case, though explaining why the English and Spanish came to blows eventually is perhaps not. For starters, the war itself was undeclared, so finding a start date for the conflict is difficult in of itself. But for me, I always found it hard to explain what it was that really motivated Philip to suddenly invade the country he had endured for so long in 1588, after nearly two decades of simply allowing its slights at home and abroad. There is a train of thought that would argue Philip had planned the invasion all along, and had merely postponed it until his kingdom was capable of mounting an appropriate attack against England while another idea has it that Philip remained willing to tolerate Elizabeth until she really began to interfere in the affairs of Spain and the Netherlands. Certainly, the latter holds the most water for me, judging by the sudden activity in Spain and how it coincides with the English interference in the Netherlands. Remember the reasoning behind Elizabeth's decision to get involved in the Dutch-Spanish War in the first place. While loans and promises of protection have been exchanged, it was really the oppression 
that Catholic Europe was gearing up against Elizabeth that pushed her over the edge. The Treaty of Joinville on December 31st, 1584, was signed between Spain and the apparently preeminent faction in the French Civil War at the time, the Guises. This promised Catholic unity against Protestantism, which included the Netherlands and England. Liz was probably a tad shocked at the underlying tones of the treaty, even though it would in reality fall apart months later due to the declining prominence of the Guises, to have her nation blacklisted so blatantly must have seemed like something of a rude awakening. That Philip now sought to destroy her would manifest itself in the years to come in various assassination attempts and whispers filtering in across the channel. But Elizabeth was determined to take a stand at this early stage by now approaching the Dutch rebels directly and offering them overt assistance in the Treaty of Nonsuch on the 10th of August 1585. The Dutch readily accepted the English offers of aid, and as word began to filter back to Philip that Elizabeth was now actively supporting the Dutch rebels right under his nose, it is highly unlikely that he understood the English action as one of a reaction against the English being encircled in Europe. Instead, this is the moment Philip saw red. It should be pointed out that at this point Philip is believed to have accepted that the Anglo-Spanish War had begun. Once he had received word that Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, had landed in Holland with a sizeable force. The news that the English had actually landed an intervention force enraged Philip, and would surely have seen like a dramatic escalation of events. As Antwerp fell in mid-1585 though, and as the Netherlands appeared to be buckling under the severe strain of a properly supported and led Spanish force, Elizabeth's decision to go all in does not seem like a drastic one considering the implications for her and her kingdom should the Dutch revolt peter out. With war now official between England and Spain in August 1585, it did seem certain that a new phase had begun in the Dutch revolt, and that a new era had begun in European affairs. Certainly, when they emerged on the other side, and both under new monarchs, Spain and England will have torn the heart out of each other, and would require years of financial and domestic recovery. But by that time, in 1604, the sense was really there that at the end of that war, a new age in European power politics had begun. Philip was making some serious headway in the Netherlands, and despite the mounting costs of that venture, decided to focus more intently, for the first time, on the heart of the problem in England. From August 1585, the time when the Anglo-Spanish War is said to have officially begun, Philip began to receive counsel from those within his court who could advise on the best course of action for invading England. In Elizabeth's court, meanwhile, her spy network across Europe became increasingly active, as an attempt to invade her lands was expected from Spain in the near future. As well as this, though, Elizabeth turned to the rest of the world in an attempt to find allies. France, for the moment, was still a relative non-entity in Europe, so long as its civil wars continued. But Elizabeth wasn't thinking of France, she was thinking of something far more daring. In her quest to find an ally she could properly use against Philip, Liz had settled on the Ottoman Empire. Edward Barton and Edwin Pears, in their academic article entitled The Spanish Armada and the Ottoman Port, examined the mindset behind Liz's decision to seek Ottoman aid. Quote, the idea of an alliance with the port was a natural one, 
and if the suggestion made to the reigning sultan had been accepted and carried into effect, namely to send a fleet to attack Spain in the Mediterranean, England's task in defending herself would have been made much easier than it was. End quote. However, the problem was that the sultan in this case seemed altogether unwilling to irk the Spanish, who had dealt his state a heavy defeat in the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, and believed England's position was untenable to begin with anyway. In order to persuade him otherwise then, Liz appealed to the sultan's strategic sense of power in Europe, i.e. the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Quote, Again and again, during a period of several years, the port was urged to act with England. The arguments used were unanswerable. Philip had become the most powerful sovereign in Christendom. He had made himself master of the Italian states and the Low Countries, and had the Holy Roman Empire and France completely under his influence. Two powers alone resisted him, England and Turkey. Make no mistake, was the drift of Elizabeth's appeal. Philip is attacking us now, and if he succeeds, your turn comes next. Join with us, and our arms will probably be successful. If we are divided, his force is so overwhelming that, though we are confident of success, who knows what the result may be. End quote. Following this examination of the two powers, a good summarization of the events from the Ottoman point of view in the years beforehand is then provided. Quote, the Mediterranean potentates in 1571 were the Sultan, the Pope, the rulers of Genoa, of Venice, of Malta, and, above all Christian powers, Spain. In that year the combined forces of the Christian potentates, commanded by Don John of Austria, checked the growing maritime power of the Turks and inflicted upon it a crushing defeat at the Battle of Lepanto. But in spite of this defeat, the traditional reputation of Turkey as a great naval power still existed. Nor is the reason for this difficult to find. Under the Sultan, Salem II, Europe had seen and had regarded as a general calamity the conquest of Cyprus. The Christian fleets had been defeated in 1538, off Previsa, by Herod and Barbarossa, and from that year the Turks had been regarded as the most formidable power in the Mediterranean. The Turks themselves believed that the Christians would never again venture to stand before them in open fight. The failure of Suleiman the Magnificent at the Siege of Malta in 1565, while a triumph for Christendom, had cost so much blood and treasure as to be only less disastrous than a defeat, and had shown how strong was the Turkish power at sea. Then in 1571 had come the defeat at Lepanto, which can now be recognised as one of the most decisive and complete victories of which history bears record. End quote. But it would be wrong to suggest that from such an Ottoman defeat, Spain rose to become master of the Mediterranean. This is simply not the case, since although it prevented the Ottomans from really threatening Christian Europe for a while, the vast resources and power the Ottoman state could call upon meant that the Ottomans would return again, this time having learned from their mistakes. The Ottoman Empire was thus a valuable ally for Elizabeth, if not an unusual one given the sheer volume of theocratic and religious-based arguments of the time. Still, the defeat at Lepanto had left a psychological impact on the Ottomans, from which Liz seemed able to profit, as Barton and Pears explain. Quote, the defeat of Lepanto, however, had made the Turks themselves less confident, had indeed led to the existence of the belief, which later Turkish writers had often expressed, that Allah, while he has given dominion on land to the faithful, has left that of the sea to the Christians. 
the defeat probably made the task easier for English subjects to obtain privileges from the port. England had taken no share in the confederation which had given the first serious blow to Turkish progress in Europe. The Grand Turk knew too that, though England was not a Mahometan country, its sovereign and people had taken part in some kind of religious movement by which the Christians had been divided. End quote. We have seen before how the Ottomans had provided aid for the Dutch in spite of Spain. It is a clear demonstration of the Ottoman willingness to intervene and split Christian Europe into warring factions for their benefit. Trade concessions had been granted to Liz in 1579, which had guaranteed England's position as a free trade partner with the Turks. While this trade became more important, symbolically and financially, while the Spanish prepared to invade. It is a good example of opportunism in history. Though England had not participated in the Battle of Lepanto of 1571 that had set Ottoman progress back in the Mediterranean, it still seemed a bit strange that both states would be on the same page. Of course, such appearances were deceptive. The two were allies out of sheer necessity, if they were allies at all. Had either's public been made aware of the dealings, it is likely they would have been met with severe criticism. The Ottoman Empire was, to the English public, the barbarous juggernaut which had rampaged through ancient Christian culture and enslaved its principles and subjects, so it would have seemed like the last place that the reforming Liz should have placed her trust. But Liz was looking at the bigger picture. She was not unaware of the gathering storm in Europe, or the very real threats posed to her by Spanish or Catholic predominance in Europe. We should also remember the domestic problems Liz had to deal with. Certainly by 1585, England could be called a Protestant state, not along the same lines as the Reformation-based Lutheran or Calvinist denominations of the north of Europe, since such tags on England would have likely horrified English Protestants, but English subjects were considered part of the Church of England, an institution which shared a remarkable number of similarities with the Roman Catholic Church, save for the key removal of the Pope as its head, to be replaced by the monarch and the differences in mass. It was largely the product of Henry VIII, who had ensured his separation from Rome during his numerous messy divorces and beheadings which made his reign so infamous. When his daughter, Mary of Tudor, ascended to the throne in 1554, she sought to rectify England's position in Christendom by attempting to reconcile it with the Catholic Church. In this, through a prolonged system of sectarian violence and dogmatism, she was apparently successful. But upon her death in 1558, the Protestant faith began to firmly take root in the populace, determined now more than ever to break with Rome and forge a separate English identity. Elizabeth's quality in the early stages of her reign was her refusal to peruse and persecute the divisions of her Christian subjects as relentlessly as Mary had done. Certainly, Catholicism was out in England, but so too was the reign of terror that had characterised Mary's reign. On the 18th of May, 1568, Liz's reign became a tad more complicated thanks to events unfolding to the north in Scotland. Queen Mary of Scotland, whose husband had been murdered, remarried the man accused of carrying out the deed, and the shame brought upon her pushed her people to imprison her and replace her with the rule of her son, who would become King James VI of Scotland, a one-year-old baby at the time. 
Mary fled from captivity and, after an unsuccessful attempt to regain her throne, fled then to England and to her now cautious cousin, Elizabeth. It is unlikely that Liz wanted to get all that involved in Scottish dynastic affairs in the late 1560s, but the arrival of Mary necessitated such an involvement. In time, over the 17 and a half years she spent under house arrest, Mary, Queen of Scots, would become the focal point for conspiring assassins and usurpers who wished to place a Catholic monarch on England's throne, including Philip II of Spain. As the plots involving Mary intensified, so did the calls from her ministers to execute Mary and remove the threat to her rule. But Liz continued to resist these calls, and Mary would remain in captivity right until the 8th of February 1587, a year before the Armada was to set sail. Peter Padfield, in his book Armada, notes of the mindset of Elizabeth with regards to keeping Mary alive. Quote, Was it sentiment? Revulsion against killing one of her own blood royal? Or remembrance of the mortal dangers she had experienced under Mary Tudor? Podcast footnote. Mary Tudor ruled England for four years, but during that time, Liz, as Mary's half-sister and heir to England, was engaged in a constant battle to keep her own head and went from fleeing Mary's custody to an extended stint in the Tower of London, where she often believed she would be executed. Her survival in that situation may have made her, as Padfield alludes here, more sympathetic to Mary Queen of Scots, since this Mary was now in the exact same helpless position Liz had been in 20 years before. End podcast footnote. Was it in part calculation? While Mary lived and provided a focus for conspiracy, it would be easier to detect the plots. Was it fear that her death might provoke hotheads into action? Or finally decide Philip to send his armies against her, so starting an open war whose outcome was incalculable? She tempered as she had temporised when earlier in her reign her councillors and parliament implored her to marry to secure her succession. End quote. Proving her pragmatism through wartime, Liz sent Francis Drake to the New World to disrupt its overseas trade and occupy its outposts. In the new year of 1586, Drake managed numerous impressive raids and plunders, including the capture of Santo Domingo, modern-day Dominican Republic, in January, before leaving after thoroughly sacking the town and being paid ransom, to land in present-day Colombia to sack Cartagena de Indias, and follow the same pattern of leaving after being paid a ransom in April. In May, Drake's forces captured St. Augustine in Florida, and absolutely destroyed everything of value in the settlement, which was the most northern of all of Spain's possessions in the New World. Attempts to centralise Spain's American and Caribbean territories at St. Augustine were frustrated, and the Spanish administration made it look even more helpless when in October, Drake sacked the towns of Vigo and Bayona in Galicia, the northwest province of Spain itself. All of these events made Philip more determined than ever to see the plans for an invasion of England, and Philip began to listen to both the Duke of Parma and Santa Cruz, that admiral who had so proven himself in the Azores. Santa Cruz, for his part, believed in a highly ambitious and expensive plan and would become infuriated as time elapsed and Philip hesitated to act. Lawrence Flanagan, in his book Ireland's Armada Legacy, examines Cruz's plans. Quote, the proposals put forward by Santa Cruz in 1586 survive, and he suggested a very impressive force, 
so impressive in fact that it would have been impossibly expensive to organise, equip and put into effect. Costing a wholly impossible sum just short of 4 million ducats, this plan would have denuded Spain of every vessel needed to maintain the country's economy, as well as draining her of her able-bodied men, regardless of whether the necessary skilled mariners could be found. Even the provisions required were a monstrous total, a shopping list well beyond the most optimistic exponents of 16th century food technology. End quote. Santa Cruz's plan to first create one of the largest armies Spain had ever mustered, and then send that army on a fleet up the coast, across the channel and into the English beaches, was thus far too ambitious to work. For Philip II, though, this plan and its principles, i.e. having the largest army and the largest navy, certainly appealed to him on its fundamental levels. To demonstrate the power of Spain, Philip believed, only the largest army, the strongest fleet, and the greatest expense would do. He thus set about trying to reduce costs while still meeting the standards established by Santa Cruz. Philip II, micromanager that he was, insisted on perusing every detail of the plans as they changed, and this ensured that the whole enterprise dragged on far longer than was intended, and that those in charge of the force were immensely frustrated with Philip's apparent hesitation and delaying by the time the force did set sail on the 28th of May 1588 from Lisbon. Lawrence Flanagan explains Philip's refining of the force that would become the Armada. Quote, Although the details of Santa Cruz's scheme were impractical, the basic concept appealed to Philip. He studied it, analysed it, criticised it, and sought ways to cut down the enormous costs. The first and most obvious method seemed to be to save on the number of soldiers actually carried in the fleet, and thereby reduce the quota of ships and the costs of providing them. He already had an army in Flanders, a well-trained, battle-hardened army under the Duke of Parma. It would be much cheaper to transport this across the channel under the protection of a strong fleet. This basic rethinking was followed by other changes. Despite the contribution to the success of Lepanto, the showing of the galleys against Drake when he attacked at Cadiz, plus the advice of Philip's naval advisers, indicated a great reduction in the number of galleys, from 40 to just 4 to be desirable. The relative size of the ships was increased, from an average of 500 tonnes to one of 700 tonnes, and the number of guns to be carried on board was almost doubled. End quote. The mention of Drake's attack at Cadiz is an interesting one, for Elizabeth was not willing to merely await the arrival of the Armada once it had been constructed. She instead adopted a new strategy of taking the fight consistently to the Spanish in their home waters, and she did this by allowing Francis Drake her infinitely dependable pirate and patriot, to command the attack. Peter Padfield explains first the naval policy of Elizabeth, and then follows with its devastating results when it was implemented by Drake at Cadiz. Quote, Reports have been coming in from Lisbon and Spanish harbours of great preparations for a maritime expedition, rumoured to be from England, and Elizabeth listened to advice that Hawkins, Drake and other exponents of forward naval policy later called the Blue Water School of Naval Strategy, had been pressing for years. I.e. the best place to defend the shores of England was on the coast of the enemy. Drake was given the command. Elizabeth soon changed her mind, revised instructions, forbade Drake to offer any violence to his, Phillips, towns or shipping within harbour, or do any act of hostility upon the land, but to confine his plundering to the sea. By the time this message reached Plymouth, where the squadron was concentrating, Drake had sailed. 
The wind commands me away. Our ship is under sail. God grant that we may so live in his fear, as the enemy may cause to say that God doth fight for her majesty abroad as well as at home. End quote. Drake would become indispensable to Elizabeth during this era. His ability to think and improvise on the fly saved his skin numerous times before, but they also made him rich and highly successful, as Padfield explains. Quote, At no time did Drake display this more dramatically than when Elizabeth sent him to disrupt the Armada preparations in 1587. In the first place, he sailed in great haste before her countermanding orders could be received, or perhaps they had, and he was forced to put out to deny them before his victualling and manning was completed. Reaching the coast of Portugal and learning that the Spanish Admiral Santa Cruz was in Lisbon, but that Cadiz was full of shipping, with only galleys as protection, he made for Cadiz. When he arrived with his leading ships, he sailed straight in, against the advice of his vice-admiral, one of the old school who tried to insist on a council. The galleys, the traditional Mediterranean warship, came to meet him but could do nothing with their bow guns against the broadsides of Atlantic sailing ships and he fell on the otherwise defenceless merchantman in the outer harbour, destroying all of the larger ships that could not flee to shallow water, and then led a sortie against the inner harbour and burnt a galleon belonging to Santa Cruz. By the time he had left, the Cadiz division of the Armada, chiefly storeships, it is true, had been wiped out. End quote. The entire event was a fiasco for Spain. As Drake left Cadiz, he then plundered all the way home, capturing and destroying naval vessels as he went. His small force destroyed at least 100 ships of Spanish and Portuguese design, and his capture of the Portuguese ship St. Philip was a huge boon for the English, since it was the first ship to be captured on a return journey from the Indies. The value of the St. Philip alone came to over £100,000, and the documents on board the ship shed light on the area for the English and will come to be used 12 years later, when the East India Company was established in the region. Drake returned to England with an even greater reputation than before. While he claimed to have singed the King of Spain's beard in his adventures, they had lasted just over four months, had cost Philip in excess of half a million ducats, and set the Armada plans back by over a year. Drake's usage of the phrase, singeing the King of Spain's beard, is especially symbolic. In 1571, the Battle of Lepanto, in which Philip played a vital role, was said at the time to have singed the beard of the Sultan, and in the preceding years, the phrase did gain popularity, and to singe one's beard became almost as popular a term as YOLO is today, but far less annoying. Interestingly, the Sultan noted this in the years before when he handed a serious defeat to the Venetians in his capture of Cyprus. In the negotiations between the two sites that followed, the Sultan remarked, You come to see how we bear our misfortune, but I would have you know the difference between your loss and ours. In wresting Cyprus from you, we deprived you of an arm. In defeating our fleet, you have only shaved our beard. An arm when cut off cannot grow again, but a shorn beard will grow all the better for the razor. Padfield concludes with the effect the whole endeavour at Cadiz and thereafter had on Philip. Quote, Besides the pulverising effects on Santa Cruz's preparations, the ravages on the very coast of Spain had a very bad effect on the confidence of Philip's bankers, hence on the rate of interest he had to pay. Their judgement was good. 
Drake had a grip on Phillips' jugular, and had England been a developed naval power with reserves and organisations capable of maintaining the blockade, something which she did not manage for another two centuries, the Armada could never have sailed. End quote. However, while Drake had dealt a serious blow to the prestige, security, and maintenance of Philip's forces, he had not defeated them at sea in the kind of full-blown decisive naval battle that seemed essential for the time. Liz was certain that she had bought her kingdom time, but she also must have known in her bones that Philip would repair and be on his Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Way to invading yet again. When that happened, the English could not afford to lose as the Venetians had done, since it would not be merely an arm that they would lose, but their entire body and life. during this time was affected by the great migration northwards of its Protestant population into the better defended regions such as Holland and Zealand. The capture of Antwerp by the Duke of Parma's forces in mid-1585 caused many Protestants living in the region, many of the commercial classes and influential, to move north away from the conflict. This movement of so many wealthy and important Dutch men and women would contribute greatly to the golden age that the northern Dutch provinces enjoyed over the next three decades. With such a high concentration of commercially and financially capable individuals living in such a geographically important place, prosperity was bound to follow. The English Earl of Leicester failed to make any military headway in his campaigns alongside the Dutch and was eventually forced to return to England in 1587. The up-and-down nature of the Anglo-Dutch reps in the Netherlands had persuaded Elizabeth then not to send any more military aid directly to the Netherlands, 
as if she could have anyway, once the full revelations of Philip's plans for her kingdom began to become known. However, the Anglo-Dutch relationship still endured, and Liz recognised it for what it was, essential for both states' sakes. This is especially apparent when one looks at the impact of the blockade of the southern Netherlands by the Sea Beggars and their captain Justin of Nassau, William the Silent's illegitimate elder brother. Justin's strategy was to focus the main portion of his force on Antwerp and the Flemish coast with lighter and smaller flyboats which could not be touched by the Spanish forces. This meant that these Dutch were able to critically impair any Spanish moves along the coast, as well as financially cripple these regions and prevent the delivery of important food stores from the Baltic, which the war-ravaged regions of the Netherlands relied so heavily upon. But the efforts of the sea beggars in this region were significant for another reason. They controlled, by way of their blockading of the region, all movement of naval traffic in and out of the shallow sea in the area. This meant that when the theoretical armada did arrive to pick up the Duke of Parma's army as per the plan eventually agreed to by Philip, the vulnerable barges would have to run an impossible gauntlet while they ferried the Spanish army into the awaiting armada. The Dutch sea beggars, if they are presented with Parma's army in such a vulnerable position, the same army, remember, that had captured Antwerp and ravaged their country with impunity for the past five years, would have annihilated them before they got to the safety of their giant armada and sailed the rest of the way to England. There was simply no way that the sea beggars would have allowed Parma's army to just be picked up by Santa Cruz when they traversed the shallow waters in their unarmed, flimsy and often believed unsafe barges to reach their armada waiting in the deeper seas. Thus the plan accepted by Philip was inherently flawed. It is possible he did not know fully the damage that the sea beggars were doing. But then Philip II is infamous for poring over every last detail of every campaign his forces were involved in, as well as reading every dispatch, every correspondence and letter addressed either to him or indirectly concerning him, so it is hard to see how he never grasped the implications of the sea beggars for his overall armada plans. Perhaps he simply believed they could be dealt with before the armada set sail. Liz, however, was aware of the Dutch struggle in more detail. Despite Robert Dudley's eventual decision to withdraw to England, her country still held a seat on the States General, and was thus informed of events far more quickly than Philip. Geography and communication plays a key role here. Philip was simply unable to coordinate the two planned wings of his invasion force effectively. This will be demonstrated later when the Duke of Parma's replies take months to arrive only to inform the Spanish monarch of situations and circumstances which have long since changed. Elizabeth attempted at last to solve the question of Mary Queen of Scots during 1587 too. During that year in February, before Drake had left for Cadiz, another plot was uncovered by Liz's spies which implicated Mary once again in a Spanish sponsor plot to assassinate Liz and place Mary on the throne with Philip's blessing, after the invasion of that country had been completed. Drake's actions at Cadiz would place Philip's plans here on the back burner, but so too did Liz's final and apparent reluctant decision to have Mary executed. With her death in February came an even darker relationship with Spain and Philip. Now having enraged all Catholic heads of state in Europe for her butchery of a Catholic sovereign, Liz could expect no help from the very few Catholic friends she had made earlier. Philip thus ratcheted up the invasion plans, though he would soon run into difficulties. Perhaps because of this, Elizabeth continued her negotiations with the Ottomans with a renewed ferocity. 
unwilling to accept that the Ottoman Empire's key officials had been bribed previously by the Spanish to stay away, Elizabeth appointed her representative, William Harbone, in the early 1580s to negotiate directly with the Turks at Constantinople. However, as the years progressed, as Liz sent more and more urgent letters requesting aid now, before Philip made his move and the opportunity to help was lost, it became clear that, whatever well wishes the Sultan might bestow upon Liz's Protestant nation and its struggle, his empire had little inclination to deal with the power of Spain while the bribes continued to flow in. This is echoed by Edward Barton and Edwin Pears in their already cited academic article entitled The Spanish Armada and the Ottoman Port. Quote, Harbone appears to have obtained a promise from the Sultan that if Queen Elizabeth would attack Spain in the Atlantic, he would send a great force for the same purpose to the Mediterranean coasts of Spain. The letters from Harbone and his successor Sir Edward Barton show that nothing was done to give effect to this promise. Two years later, that is in 1585, a similar promise was made in writing. But in spite of continual reminders, all attempts to move the Turk were fruitless. Letters written, as we shall see, at a later period, give an explanation such as must often have been applicable to Turkish delay. Bribes distributed among the Turkish officials secured their support. The Spaniard, with his newly acquired American wealth, could pay more to the ministers than any other powers could or would. End quote. Sir Edward Barton tried to be more forceful with the Ottomans, and requested additional promises from the Sultan directly that a coordinated assault between England and Turkey could be conducted. But the Sultan remained unable to properly conduct his policy, and probably wished instead to see the war involving his sworn enemy in Philip to continue for as long as possible so as to weaken his strength rather than intervene, and perhaps end the conflict prematurely. Barton in despair sent a desperate letter, pleading with the Sultan to stick to his agreed plan and uphold the side of his deal, from which the Ottomans had received rich English rewards. The letter itself is a bit long, but I think it does help the modern reader, or listener, to grasp the kind of language used within diplomacy between states at the time, especially when one state wanted something else from the other. It is also a further testament to the, if not worldwide, then certainly the Europe-wide nature of the Anglo-Spanish conflict, which had also drawn the interest of France and the Austrian Habsburgs, and which the Dutch remained dependent upon for a successful English conclusion. The letter, dated the 9th of November 1587, reads as follows. It pleased Almighty God that a solemn treaty should be made through me between my Sovereign Lady the Queen of England and Your Imperial Majesty the labour of which I undertook the more faithfully and freely eight years ago in order that, to his great glory, all the idolaters, our common accursed enemy, might be entirely extirpated by means of the immense power granted to your majesty. When therefore, four years ago, I had received from the councillors of your highness the solemn promise that if my sovereign, who was living in peace with the Spaniard, the head of all the idolaters, should on her side declare war against the Spaniard, then also your highness would make it on your side, I never ceased to pray and beseech my sovereign until she got rid of the ancient treaty and waged fiercest war, both by land and sea, against him. And when, about three years ago, Spain fortunately made war against the Queen, proposing conditions of peace to her upon various and unjust terms, never has she yielded, because I have always urged her to the contrary, promising by my letters that your majesty would no longer delay the carrying out of your former promise, but that you on your part would prepare against Spain a great force which my sovereign has for a long time expected. 
Now, however, she has begun to doubt altogether of my fidelity, since many of my enemies affirm to my sovereign that your highness is unwilling to execute your promise. Insomuch that I am daily expectation of letters of recall, and the loss of my head when I shall go home. Your Highness will see what an unjust recompense of my excessive labour and fidelity towards Your Majesty I anticipate. I beseech Your Majesty by God Almighty to spare my innocence and to send, if not the whole of your great force against this idolater, at least sixty or eighty triremes to harass him in your neighbourhood, from which he has withdrawn the whole of his usual army to employ it against my sovereign. As these parts of his court are thus exposed, they will be easily overrun and placed in subjection to the empire of Your Highness. I ask that this occasion may be employed for the glory and increase of your empire, since my queen upon my urging, and your highness's instance, will so fetter the Spaniard, that lie will be unable to move, and that your highness will not permit this opportunity to escape fruitlessly, lest thou incur the fierce anger of God, who has created thee a mighty man, and the greatest of all the princes of this world, for the express purpose of destroying idolaters. Moreover, the whole world will justly accuse thee of the basest ingratitude, if you should desert your faithful ally in her necessity because she, trusting to the friendship and promises of your highness, has placed her life and her empire on account of your highness in the greatest danger in which it is possible to place them. For, on account of the refusal of my queen to make peace with him, it is now the intention of the Spaniard, relying on the help of the Pope and all the idolatrous princes, to utterly destroy her and afterwards, when no other obstacle shall remain in Christendom, the Spaniard will direct his invincible strength to the destruction of thee and thy empire, and will become the sole monarch, as the Pope, who is believed by them to be an earthly god with many lying prophecies, does not cease to persuade the Spaniard that he can make him, and that he will become. But if your highness, at the same time with my sovereign, wisely and bravely, without delay, will now wage war at sea, which Almighty God, your plighted word, and opportune time, the renown of the glorious Ottomans, the sole salvation of the empire, surely invite, the proud Spaniard and the lying Pope with their followers will not only have the cup of promised victory dashed from their lips, but will receive the punishment in their own person due to their rashness. Since God alone protects his own, he will so punish these idolaters through us, that they who survive will be converted by their example to worship together with us the true God and you, fighting for his glory, will heap up victory and all other good things. As Philip oversaw the repairing of the Armada in Lisbon and across this country, he informed Santa Cruz upon his return from the Azores that he would be placed under the command of it when it set sail. To us this would make sense. Santa Cruz had made serious progress in his naval campaigning, and was the most experienced, successful admiral of the time. But Santa Cruz was greatly distressed when he learned he'd been chosen for the position. This is explained by Lawrence Flanagan in his book, Ireland's Armada Legacy. Quote, Santa Cruz, despite the modifications to his plan, was still to be the man responsible for bringing it to fruition. Or so he learned, in 1587, when he was back in the Azores after escorting the treasure fleet, and was instructed to set sail with the fleet virtually as soon as he returned. He pointed out that this was impossible. He had not enough ships, not enough men, not enough guns, not enough money. His difficulties were aggravated by the fact that Drake had destroyed at least 100 ships in Cadiz, as well as some 1,700 tons of barrel hoops and staves and the tuna fishing industry of Portugal during his enterprise of that year. End quote. Flanagan continues on the international setbacks Philip had suffered 
particularly with regards to the Pope, who had given the enterprise his blessing and had promised financial aid to the Spanish, only to back out when it was actually required. Quote, Philip's difficulties were aggravated by the fact that while reigning Pope Sixtus V was in theory totally in favour of the invasion, and was quite willing to reiterate his excommunication of Elizabeth, he was singularly unwilling actually to produce the million gold ducats he had promised. The unfortunate Marquis worked on, the subject of continued reclamations from Philip, while the fleet, its supplies and men were being assembled, a programme of commandeering foreign vessels to augment the Spanish ships available had been underway for some time. However, Santa Cruz failed to meet one imposed deadline after another. Eventually, in February 1588, he took to his bed, a broken man, and died on the 9th, universally mourned by captains and soldiers alike. End quote. The death of Santa Cruz was a key moment in the history of the Armada, because it enabled perhaps the most unfairly judged character of all time to emerge onto the scene. The Duke of Medina Sidonia, born Alonso Perez de Guzman, was an unusual choice for a man to lead the Armada. Contrary to much historical opinions of him today, he was not an aristocrat ignorant of his inexperience and eager to acquire his fame and fortune in a new field. He had been awarded the Order of the Golden Fleece, an extreme honour normally reserved for royalty, and was well respected for his administrative skills, which was the main thing that attracted him to Philip. Peter Padfield records Philip's decision. Quote, the report he had on the state of the fleet and men made it clear what was needed urgently was not an admiral or fighting general so much as an administrator who could pull the force back into shape in quick time. He did not have far to look for such a man. Don Alonso Perez de Guzman, 7th Duke of Medina Sidonia, premier noble of Andalusia, who had long experience in organising expeditions, both naval and military, was already taking a leading role in the procurement of ships, men and provisions for the Armada, and had been a technical advisor since the plans for the expedition had taken shape early in the previous year. In addition, he was the wealthiest grandee in Spain, an important qualification at that time, when leaders of expeditions and even captains of troops were expected to oil the uncertain machinery of the exchequer with their own resources. End quote. Medina Sidonia has, in my view, been unfairly represented as an arrogant, ignorant, unqualified aristocrat. In reality, the man didn't even want the position in the first place. He wrote a letter appealing to Philip, listing the reasons for his unsuitability and why Philip should reconsider. I first humbly thank His Majesty for having thought of me for so great a task, and I wish I possessed the talents and strength necessary for it. But, sir, I have not the health of the sea, for I know by the small experience I have had afloat that I soon become seasick and have many humours. Besides this, I am in great need, so much so that when I have had to go to Madrid I have been obliged to borrow money for the journey. My house owes 900,000 ducats, and I am therefore quite unable to accept the command. Apart from this, neither my conscience nor my duty will allow me to take this service upon me. The force is so great, and the undertaking so important, that it would not be right for a person like myself, possessing no experience of seafaring or war, to take charge of it. But besides all this, for me to take charge of the Armada afresh, without the slightest knowledge of it, of the persons who are to take part in it, of the objects in view, of the intelligence from England, without any acquaintance with the ports there, or the arrangements which the Marquis had been making for years past, would be simply groping in the dark. 
So, sir, you will see that my reasons for declining are so strong and convincing in His Majesty's own interests that I cannot attempt a task of which I have no doubt I should give a bad account. I should be travelling in the dark, and should have to be guided by opinions of others, of whose good or bad qualities I know nothing, and which of them might seek to deceive and ruin me. Sounds to me like perfectly reasonable justifications for refusing the appointment. But Medina Sidonia could not refuse any appointment desired for him by the king, and King Philip needed someone right now. It was February 1588, the Armada was due to sail in a few months, and Philip needed someone he could rely on. Philip was thus able to brush aside Sidonia's concerns, and chalk them down to modesty, and in some sense he was probably right. Medina Sidonia had, contrary to the widely accepted view of him today, established himself as more than competent at sea. In such battles as Lepanto in 1571, where he commanded a division of galleys, and in his capture of Tunis the year after, and during the attempted French efforts in the Azores to place Don Antonio on the Portuguese throne. In fact, Medina Sidonia had distinguished himself to the point that Philip saw no other alternative. Peter Padfield notes on Medina Sidonia's objections. Quote, there were other reasons. The Duke thought the whole idea a mistake and had no chance of success. Moreover, it was bound to cost him a great deal of money, as Philip intended, as indeed it did, some three quarters of a million ducats. Against this certain loss and the probable, more important loss of reputation, there was no advantage. His wife is supposed to have said while urging him to stay at home, It is enough to be the Duke of Medina. Indeed it was. He had nothing to prove. The roving ambitions of his youth had been replaced by care for his vast estates. He was comfortable and busy, and of a pensive and diligent rather than adventurous disposition. Some years before, Philip had appointed him governor of Milan, but he had managed, by repeated excuses and postponements, to avoid taking up the post. Now personal inclination, and a sound estimate of the consequences, led him to try the same tactics. End quote. But Philip would not relent, and whatever misgivings and barely-veiled objections he had towards the whole enterprise, he proceeded to travel for Lisbon in mid-February in obedience of his king. When he arrived in March, he found a deeply disturbing situation. The food was rotting, men were starving, disease was rampant, and morale was low. To increase and better these conditions, he visited all ships and gathered those most talented around him. Soon all that was required by the Duke was more ammunition and lots of it, according to Medina Sidonia. He was familiar with the Protestant tactics of backing off, so as not to be boarded, and so understood that more shots would be fired in the event of a naval confrontation, which was the exact situation the fleet was meant to be provoking. The problem for the Duke was, the overall cannon and ammunition shortage within his fleet was merely another product of the failure of Spain, choked industrially and financially. In short, the Italian... German, or perhaps illicit sources of ordnance, would all have to be paid, their sources transported usually by sea, their goods generally at the mercy of whatever piratical or enemy actions may be in play in the region. Additionally, Philip's reputation for paying badly, if he paid at all, meant that local industry was stagnant at best, and difficult to find as it was, the only permanent foundries being in Lisbon and Malaga. On top of that, the cannons and guns fitted to the vessels were horrendously badly organised, and were not given adequate space on the decks themselves, to the extent that precise ammunition was not available for the majority of them, and the most cannons were forced to fire what was fed into them, 
which was often the wrong calibre, and under difficult loading circumstances. That's to say nothing of the vessels themselves, and the Mediterranean home from which most of the Armada originated. This meant that the majority of them were less than well prepared for Atlantic naval exchanges, or for the more fast-paced nature of the English vessels, since most converted Mediterranean vessels had been saturated with battle decks and given top-heavy reinforcing which seriously impaired their ability to skirmish. Nevertheless, on May 28, 1588, the Duke of Medina Sidonia had to be happy with the improvements he had made to the Armada, and the awesome spectacle it presented to the population of Lisbon that day as it departed for the Atlantic. The Portuguese populace in the Iberian Union under Philip since 1580 would surely have marvelled at the power floating in front of them, and wondered how anything could have overcome it. Looks, as it turned out, could be very deceiving indeed, but the Duke had done all he could. He had gotten a crusader's blessing as his fleet departed that day. He had more than doubled the ammunition available for the gunners below decks. He had provisioned more food and water be made available, and he had provided detailed plans of the expedition to all taking part. Everything was as ready as it would ever be. Now the Duke simply had to catch the wind and let fate take care of the rest. Within a month, after enduring relentlessly bad weather and seeing his ships receive a beating in unexpectedly rough seas, the Duke's mood had changed. Bad weather had forced his fleet into Corona, an important Spanish harbour just before the Bay of Biscay and its famously treacherous waters were tackled, and by mid-June he was losing confidence in the whole thing. He wrote desperately to Philip, hoping to persuade him of the impossibility of it on June the 24th, 1588. Your Majesty is reminded that I initially refused to accept command of the Armada. This is not because I wish to refuse to work, but because I recognise that we were attacking a kingdom so powerful and so warmly aided by its neighbours, and that we should need a much larger force than Your Majesty had at Lisbon. To undertake so great a task with equal forces of the enemy would be inadvisable, but to do so with an inferior force, as ours is now, with our men lacking in experience, would be still more unwise. I am bound to confess that I see very few or hardly any of those on the Armada with any knowledge of or ability to perform the duties entrusted to them. I have tested and watched this point very carefully, and your majesty may believe me when I assure you that we are very, very weak." But Philip again ordered him onwards. By mid-July the Duke was sailing past the northwest coast of France, and the Duke of Parma was readying his forces in Flanders, which by that stage had constructed an ingenious set of canals, designed to bypass the blockade put on them by the sea beggars though they would still have to contend with them once they reached the shallow portion of the open sea. By the 20th of July, the Armada was sighted upwind to the southwest of Cornwall. The English fleet made slow progress against the wind and towards the Armada that night. But, by the morning, the English ships did have the wind behind them, and were practically chasing the Spanish. Constant skirmishing was in play here, with the English tactics clearly to avoid the Spanish specialty of ramming and boarding by staying as far away from the Armada as they could. The skirmishes were largely ineffective though, because the English were almost too cautious and thus remained just out of range to prevent any real damage being done. There were some casualties despite this though, as the Carac Rosario and the galleon San Salvador famously collided with each other and had to be abandoned. On the 23rd of July the Spanish now had the wind behind them, but the English ships were simply too superior in manoeuvrability to be caught and the English could not get close enough to board while they were being assailed by heavy English fire, 
attempts to create a Spanish base in the strip of sea between the Isle of Wight and the English coastline were foiled when a full-on English attack broke the Spanish lines apart. At this point, Medina Sidonia got word that Drake was moving up from the south with his collection of 11 ships, and thus felt forced to withdraw to Calais and await news of Palmer's army before he was cut off and surrounded. The English followed him relentlessly, but they were themselves lower on ammunition than the Spanish, whose strangely basic tactics of firing a few shots, then attempting to close and board, were exposed as laughably outdated against the faster English ships with their improved rate of fire. Medina Sidonia finally made it to Calais on the 27th of July, and packed his fleet closer into the harbour so as to prevent the English from picking off any isolated ships. But this was exactly the kind of defence that could be so easily exploited by the English, and that night the famous fireboats were sent in. It was the actual fear that the fireboats were hellburners, or ships laden with power and intended to explode, that caused the Spanish to become so disorientated and panicked that night. Medina Sidonia had been thoroughly depressed by that day's events, even though not a single ship was lost to the fire attack. Before the fire ships had even attacked that night, Medina Sidonia had been informed by Parma, whose army was supposed to be ready for transport by that stage, that he had not got the necessary transport barges ready, and would need another week to prepare his troops. This meant that Sidonia had a difficult decision to make. He could stay in Calais where it was relatively safe, so he thought, and wait for Parma's forces to embark, or he could exit the harbour and engage the English again, hopefully paving the way for a later invasion. But the decision ended up not being Sidonia's to make. The fireship attack that night had caused many of the Armada to cut their anchors and drift east with the wind, so that by morning the Armada had been almost completely scattered. But all was not yet lost for Sidonia. He continued east to rendezvous with his fleet that morning on July 28th, and prepared for an English attack the next day. It came in force. The Battle of Graveline was an unmitigated disaster for the Spanish. English tactics, superior gunnery, and the Spanish inability to properly manoeuvre or return fire decimated Medina Sidonia's ranks and sealed Elizabeth's legend. With the wind blowing harshly against them, the Spanish ships exposed their hulls to English fire too. And once sustained English fire was endured for a sufficient period of time, the majority of the Spanish gunners and slaves had either been mortally wounded or killed, leaving only the soldiers behind. By the end of the day, though, the battle seemed inconclusive even to the English, as Drake and Hawkins, the vital admiral who had reformed the Royal Navy into the deadly effective fighting force it now was, both in their turn requested additional aid and materials from home. Drake wrote, The day's service has much appalled the enemy, and no doubt but encouraged our army. However, there must be great care taken to send us munition and victual whithersoever the enemy goeth. While Hawkins noted that there should be an infinite quantity of powder and shot provided and continually sent abroad, without which great hazard may grow to our country, for this is the greatest and strongest combination, to my understanding, that was ever gathered in Christendom. Therefore I wish of it, of all my hands, to be mightily and diligently looked unto and cared for. For Medina Sidonia, though, reality must truly have been sinking in. Though the English had not destroyed the entirety of his fleet, most had been lost and were unaccounted for, having been forced to separate from the main force that day. Furthermore, his ammunition was low, his men demoralised, his food rotting, his water supplies fell, and the English fleet, 
of which he had not managed to even apparently damage, still hounded and taunted him as he drifted further north up the Flanders coastline. Elizabeth and her council of war ministers knew little of the Spanish plight. They did not know that Parma had been delayed for a week and that he was barely in contact with Sidonia. They even feared that Sidonia's actions were a diversion to draw the English fleet away so that Parma would be free to invade. When Elizabeth travelled to the English camp at Tilbury, where Robert Dudley commanded the main English defence force for London, though we know now that the true danger for England had by then passed, this was by far the impression of the time. Liz gave a speech that was intended to prepare her troops for battle and spur them on to believe in victory, even though the Spanish battle-tested army led by Parma would surely have cut them to pieces. It is the greatest war speech delivered by any monarch in my opinion and its authenticity is backed by numerous historians. So yes, she really did say that. The speech is as follows. My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I do assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear... I have always so behaved myself that, under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects, and therefore I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved, in the midst and heat of battle, to live or die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdoms, and for my people, my honour and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain, or any prince of Europe, should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which, rather than any dishonour should grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already, for your forwardness, you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you, on the word of a prince, they shall be duly paid you. In the meantime, my lieutenant general shall be in my stead, than whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject not doubting, but by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and your valour in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, of my kingdom, and of my people. Thanks for that, Mom. But Sidonia had by then come to terms with the failure of the Armada, and his forces were being blown to the north of Scotland, where many would go on to famously wreck off the west coast of Ireland to the delight of later Irish divers and local historians, but to the absolute terror of the Spanish, who were often told of the backward and barbarous Irish preference for cannibalism and ritual sacrifice. By September, the Armada had returned to Spain. With only 60 ships and less than 5,000 men surviving, it was a sorry sight. The Spanish were down but not out. They had lost the Armada to weather, bad luck and a tenacious English superiority of arms and tactics but they would learn from their mistakes. As Liz would undoubtedly be informed at the victory, 
she must have known that although her island kingdom was safe, it was not necessarily safe indefinitely. In that age-old cliché, Liz had won the battle, but she was far, very, very far, from winning the war. The Spanish Armada was merely one act of the saga known as the Anglo-Spanish War of 1585-1604, but obviously our story must end here for the moment. I know I have jumped through a dramatic number of anecdotes in the actual story of the battle alone, but in the end I decided on the character this podcast would take and settled on this. I think it was the right decision and I hope you'll agree. Everyone has heard of the Armada. Very few understand why it was sent by a king who already owned much of the known world. In fact, even less know about what happened after the Armada returned home. I'll give you a hint, Spain did not roll over. What did happen was a continuation of the diplomatic intrigue between Spain, France, England, the Netherlands and the Papacy while further armadas and counter-armadas were dispatched over the next two decades. We'll cover it all and more in the next episode, because it's simply too important a story to neglect. It actually fits quite well into another little war I've been building up to for quite a while now. You may have heard of it, it's the Thirty Years' War. So next time you hear my voice, it should be in my opening episode of that special, in which we'll look at the closing events of the 16th century and the brief period of peace which led so horrendously into another chapter of murderous war. This time, it'd be the most murderous chapter Europe, and indeed the world, had ever seen. See you then. You have reached the end of the war, sort of, but you have not reached the end of this episode, so please stay tuned for some additional extras coming up after this. Today's national anthem comes to you from Portugal. Though Portugal itself played something of a sidekick to Philip in this episode, Portuguese achievements deserve a podcast of their own easily, so I do hope someone will take up this mantle in time, and if you do, be sure to let me know, hint hint Roberto. Until that time comes though, let's marvel at this Portuguese national anthem, A Portuguesa, composed by Alfred Kiel and written by Henrique Lopez de Mendonça adopted in 1911 upon the transition of Portugal from monarchy to republic. Here is the anthem.
Today's podlight shines on Jamie Redfern. You may think you know Jamie from his previous epics on Alexander and Hannibal as part of his History Of podcast series. However, this podcast machine recently developed a brand new podcast on the Arab Spring, a no doubt critical event in that region's history. Jamie's coverage goes way back to the early 19th century, so this should confirm to you that the attention to detail and historical scope that we've come to love and expect from Mr. Redfern's project is a staple here too. Check it out, simply by searching for History of the Arab Spring in Google or iTunes. While you're at it, check out his older aforementioned projects on Hannibal and Alexander, and discover, if you haven't already, why podcasting loves Jamie Redfern. My very first audiobook was always going to be Monarchy by David Starkey. I still remember how captivating the quality of his TV series of the same name was, and the book was something I burned through during my previous days as a nerd for all things monarchy, which I understand is strange for an Irishman, so please don't tell the IRA. Regardless, David Starkey actually reads this book to you, which is reason enough in itself to buy it, though the book's content is incredible in its quality and revelations particularly in its coverage of Elizabeth, which is why it pops to mind here. You can get this audiobook for free if you want, and never have to pay for anything to do with Audible ever again, if you simply follow the link audibletrial.com forward slash wdfpodcast. Those hard at hearing or remembering can also find that link in the description section of the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page, but that again is audibletrial.com forward slash wdfpodcast. Once you begin your free trial, you may simply leave with your audiobook in hand, or you can continue to browse their incredible range of audiobooks and products to your heart's content. If you are looking for ways to support, get in contact with, or inquire about this podcast, BFIT really is the best way to do it. BFIT is an acronym. Every letter stands for a different way where you can support my baby. B is for blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. By going to that site, and by reading that blog, you can get a different perspective on what I thought of each episode. And, if you feel so financially inclined, there is a donate button in the top right-hand corner as soon as you arrive on the website. So, if you feel like sending some money my way, that'd be much appreciated. E is for email, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com, where you can send me whatever kind of email you want, as long as it's not spam, and as long as you're not going to tell me about some distant Nigerian cousin I have, who I can claim a million euro inheritance from, because I really don't believe you, so stop sending me that. Seriously though, emails really are one of my favourite ways to contact people. I think there's just something about emails that makes me feel so self-important and wonderful, so any emails you feel like sending, go ahead. I've already received a number of pretty interesting ones, one springs to mind about the First World War, and I'm currently arguing with that guy about exactly how right I am. So there you go. Thanks, Chris. F is for Facebook, where you can like the Facebook page of the same name, and also join the History Podcasts group, where you'll be able to come in contact with podcasters and people who listen to podcasts just like you. I highly recommend it. It's a brilliant community, and it's full of vibrant and interesting people who develop vibrant and interesting projects. So check it out. That again is History Podcasts. I is for iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe, all of which greatly help this podcast advance in popularity within iTunes, which is probably the primary source people use for podcasts, so obviously that's a good thing. 
any ratings or reviews you could send my way would be a big help. While subscribing for you is obviously an advantage because it means you don't have to find this podcast every time it's released. Which, considering my schedule, is probably a good thing for you. Finally, T is for tell a friend. Or tell somebody, or tell anybody, depending on how you feel. Basically, just tell people about my podcast and let them know that I talk to myself for about an hour every now and then about a war throughout history, and that it's pretty damn good. Or good, or reasonable, or okay, or fair. Either way, just let them know that this exists and that they should go and find it. Thanks. So that's be fit then. B for blog, E for email, F for Facebook, I for iTunes, and T for tell people. If you're thinking of doing be fit... If you have done BeFit, or parts of it, or all of it, or even thinking of doing parts of it, or all of it, thank you. Because your contributions make a huge difference to me, whether it's moral or financial support. Thanks so much for all of it, guys. With that out of the way, I think we can finally get out of here. My name is Zach, and you have been listening to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 24, The Spanish Armada. Thanks. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.